This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is brought to you by Everyman Jack. If you haven't heard of them, they're a men's grooming company that creates some of the highest performing, best smelling products on the market. They believe it's not just about what you put in your body that matters, but what you put on your body from their body wash to deodorant to beard oil and more. They're made with naturally derived ingredients and incredibly outdoorsy scents that bring the best of nature to their bottles and bars. I'm a huge fan of all their stuff. The sandalwood scent, probably my favorite of all the things they have. And it's literally in my shower right now. So here's what you do. Head to everymanjack.com today and use our special promo code PUT6, PUT and the number six for 25% off on orders of 50 bucks or more, making small changes to your routine, even in the shower, can have a significant impact. And Everyman Jack makes that easy. Everyman Jack, naturally derived, outdoor inspired. We're also sponsored by Amino Vitals. Amino Vitals' mission is to provide the highest quality of amino acid-based nutritional products to all athletes aspiring to improve their conditioning and performance. The BCAAs, Glutamine and arginine help replenish the body's muscle proteins and jumpstart the recovery process. I've been using Amino Vital since last fall, got introduced to them, and I see a positive impact from their action and recovery products. It helps me just get rid of some of those, you know, aches and pains that come with a tough workout. Hit up amino-vital.com, use the code PUT6 at checkout and save 20% or just click on their link on the show page and save today. The headline in the Associated Press on July 7th read, an Afghan man who spent years helping U.S. forces in Afghanistan is shot and killed in Washington. But there's so much more to that story, including a bond and brotherhood between the Afghan man killed, his name was Nasrat, and our guest today. Matt Butler is Army Special Forces. Nasrat was his interpreter on deployments to Afghanistan. We cover a lot in our conversation, including their service together, the movie script that was Nasrat and his family's exit from Afghanistan, and we get into plant-based medicine for PTSD, all on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Hey guys, Brian Jodis back with another episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Matt Butler joins me, uh, former U.S. Army Special Forces. Great dude, got connected to him from our buddy Worth. You might remember when we were talking Afghan evac. He was on the show, and I said, I got somebody that would be uh, an interesting conversation for you to have. So, Matt, grateful to have you, man. Thanks for joining us. Thank, yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Bro, real quick before we get into it, super grateful for our sponsors on the front of the show. You see this? Look at this loot I got back here. I look at it. this Look at this stash. So I <laughs> talked about it on last week's show. The guys at One Nation Coffee have absolutely hooked it up. John Richards is the founder and the uh, owner. It's a veteran-owned business. He is a former Navy EOD guy, right? So you were special forces in the Army, but the yep. guys that sort of running around with the SEALs, blowing stuff up with them, that's what John did for a long time. So he's a great dude, and he started getting in the coffee space late in his military career and was like, I want to keep doing this. So they, they made this company, One Nation Coffee. Their coffee's great. I've been drinking it this week. It's excellent, so I'm not going to tell you about something that's dog crap. It's good. He hooked it up, and here's what we're doing. We're sending coffee to our guests. So, Matt, when we get done, hook me up with your address. I'm going to send some coffee your way. Yeah, uh, I love and, it. Right? And all of it is uh, it's Reveille, right? It's all got cool military names. They oh, got okay. a nine, a special 9-12 blend for those who 
right? Sprung into action that, that next day. Um, we got grounds, we got beans, I got pods back there. It's awesome. And for those of you listening, they're like, well, shoot, man, Brian, you're hooking your guests up with coffee. Well, here's what you do. Go to one nation coffee.com. Use the code P U T six at checkout. And John's hooking you with 15% off. Like, just like that. No questions asked. And they've got a foundation where they're giving a bunch of money back to veteran charities and stuff too. So just love it. Uh, it fits with what we're doing here. Their catchphrase. We've got your 6 a.m kind of uh fits with our style around here. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Yeah, it works out well. And I and that was already in place before I ever even met John. Somebody mm-hmm. was like, "Oh, that's cool, man. Did you help him come up with his." I'm like, "No, nah, man, that's just that's the way the good Lord intervenes in our lives." And so here we that's are. That's right. Dude, you're in Utah, man. You told me it was hot out there. What's going on in Utah today? Oof, just trying to survive this uh this heat wave. Um we got about uh we, well, we had a record snowfall up in the mountains. I think it was Right. Something crazy like 900 inches uh, over the winter, but um, so it's helping. I mean, we have water moisture, but uh, it's still it's just really, really hot. Well, I'm in central North Carolina, about an hour from where you spent a little bit of time at Fort Bragg. Yep, and it's hot as balls here this week. I mean, that's just <laughs> yeah. that's about the way to describe it. Um, it's not like, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just hot, just on you. It's super humid three mile run today. Soaked. Oof. It was not like, it was not like a long strenuous run. Absolutely drenched, but that's the way it goes, man. I mean, it's, you know, middle of July. Yep. So yep. anyways, well, look, man, I'm thrilled to have you. We're going to share a pretty heavy story here in a minute, uh, yeah. about a friend of yours, uh, your interpreter, when you spent your time in Afghanistan. Yes, sir. A little lighthearted on the front here, but we are going to share a heavy story because you guys remember back to when we were kind of in the throes of the withdrawal and the exit. And um, we got tied in with the Team America folks and with Worth. And we were talking a lot about just what that was looking like. And I just he 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 came to my heart um, about a week or two ago. I was watching Sound of Freedom and prepping for the interview with Jordan Harmon from angel studios about, you know, that child trafficking, just that terrible plague on our world. I just was kind of thinking back to worth for some reason. And I said, boy, is there anything going on in the spaces? You know, my friend, Matt would be one to talk to. He's got a pretty emotional story about that. But before that, you know, army guy, man, special forces, right. Um, got to travel the globe. Uh, what led you in that path? Was that a, was that a <laughs> thing as a kid? You were like, I'm going to do that. Or was this, what, no. I've Dude. heard multiple versions of how guys get there. I'm always just, I always just like the journey. So what was it? Um, I, I don't even have a word to describe it. I mean, it was circumstance really. Hmm. So I joined the army in 90. I was an enlisted kid right out of, you know, right off the block, so to speak. Um, needed money to go to college. I grew up pretty poor, wanted out of my small town of 500 so I did, I did an original enlistment to, you know, an enlisted guy in the signal corps. I got out, used the money to go to school. I was, I was uh, in ROTC here in Utah in Weber state and thought, you know, I'm going to just boost my GPA by taking some of those ROTC classes. I had no intention of making it a career, but you right. know, I mean, I can march in a circle. So let's get some A's. And um, then at the end of my, college you know experience i was like actually the only thing that interests me is the army so i went back into the army 
Uh, but what year was it? So you went in at 90, but then got out to go back to school. Yep. Right? And then went back in. So when do you go back in? Uh, so I, I, I was actually in the reserves. So I went, I was, I joined in 90 and transitioned um, as a cadet and as ROTC student uh, within a couple of years. And then I graduated in 93 uh, as a field artillery officer. But I also had, um, you know, my, my first wife, she wasn't very, um, she was worried. I guess that's the way to say it. she was, she was pretty anxious about me, you know, in any war and combat, even though that was 90 and, you know, there wasn't anything on the horizon necessarily. So I, I sort of tried to, you know, keep the peace by going into the guard. So I was a field artillery national guard guy, and I was actually selling real estate for a couple of years. And I was, I was miserable. I was just so miserable. I mean, yeah, like, no offense to filters out there, but my experience was, is that, you know, they, um, you know, they would stab you in the back for five bucks, man. And it just, you know, the, the ethos that I had already experienced and the ones that the ethos I wanted to experience in the military, I wasn't finding it. And so mm-hmm. I, I literally just had to tell her like, listen, I, I have to go on active duty. Now that was in, you know, the, in the mid nineties in the Clinton era. So the military was shrinking, not increasing. And so I went to a mentor of mine mm. and said, how do I get on active duty in this shrinking military? And he said, Oh, there's, there's four ways right now as an officer, you can either be a doctor, a lawyer, a chaplain, or a green beret. And I was like, well, I don't know what a green beret is, but so that's he, started, he, started, I, he started thinking about those things like doctor, <laughs> No. Yeah. Lawyer. No. no. Chaplain. That maybe that's not going to work, right? So, like, yeah, all right, cool. I'll just do this other extremely hard thing. Yeah. Like, what? Is, what? Tell me more about what that is, and I'll do right. that. Yes. Right. So, I I actually joined Nineteenth Group, a National Guard unit here in Utah, and I and and my mentor he coached me really well. He's like, listen, you 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 need to go through. You need to transfer to the guard. You need to go through selection. You need to go through the Q course. Yeah. And then when you've completed all your training, there's there's a process you'll go through to become active duty, but don't let anybody in the unit know that because if you do, they're going to, you know, they're gonna they're spending their money, their training dollars to get you through that course. Yeah. So it's betrayal. And you know, and uh so don't tell them. So that's that's exactly what I did. Mm. I, I joined the inside baseball company. knowledge, yeah. Yeah. So I joined the unit within a couple months. I went to selection within a, a few more months after that. I was in the Q course, um, you know, a year and a half to almost two years later uh, after all the selection and the training. Um, yeah, filled out the forms and went active duty. And I was on a and then I still had a little bit of training to do because I came from the guard. So I had to go through what they call the advanced course for for captains. Mm-hmm. And while I was going to go to the infantry one down at what is now called Fort Moore in Benning or used to be Benning in Georgia. So I thought, well, I'm going down there for advanced course. I might as well hit up um, Ranger School while I'm at it. So after all was said and done, I started that process in 97, completed the Q course, Seer School, Language School, Ranger school and the advanced course and was back on a team uh, by 99. So about a little over two years, a little less than two and a half years. Were you guys um, selecting languages at the time or did you get picked for something? Um, yeah. So they, they, 
they picked your language based on your ability. And then that kind of determined your group. And, you know, I barely speak English as a first language. So <laughs> you seem to have a pretty good grip of it so far. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I, um, I do struggle learning languages and, yeah. um, and so I, that was probably the one part of selection I was the most concerned with. Cause if you don't show any language aptitude and I, and I, I did struggle on the aptitude test. Mm -hmm. So I was assigned French and that meant from the active duty groups, there could have been three. I could have gone to first group because yeah. first group is, you know, out in, um, you know, Asia and yeah. there was some French colonialism there. So, you know, there's a little bit of applicability um same with french colonialism in africa and then 10th group which is europe and at the time third group was kind of considered you know to use a cliche it was kind of the red-headed stepchild of the hmm. groups um at the time there i'm, I'm kind of going into some military lingo here but there's what they call cocoms uh which is the the major combatant commands and the whole world was divided into COCOMs, and there the four there four of the five active duty groups, excluding third, was assigned to that you know to the all those different COCOMs. Africa was a was um, wasn't even a COCOM. Like we didn't even consider Africa uh, as a combatant command. Yeah. And for emergencies, Africa was divided between fifth group and and tenth group. So. Third group was going to Africa and doing all the, you know, the heavy work, doing all the, the you know, the rotating missions. But if something ever went down, third group wouldn't, would have had to just step aside and either let fifth or tenth handle it. Hmm. So third group was kind of like nobody wanted to go there. So it's interesting to see what played out after 9-11, where between third group and seventh, like after fifth did the invasion, they left. And third and seventh, you know, took over those primary rotations and over the course of 20 years, really, you could make an argument based on, you know, medals, Medal of Honors, wounded in action, killed in action, time spent on the ground, however you want yeah. to quantify it, that, that really third group became like one of the preeminent groups. Like it, it really rose to- Well, even the stuff you guys were involved with and the things you were tasked with doing. Yeah. Right. Um, during multiple iterations of- well, 20 years There's, worth. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's sort of the point. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting because yeah. fifth and 10th group kind of, they were there for the initial invasion. Then they left to go to Iraq and, right. and left us with Afghanistan. And so you had Afghanistan the whole time. Right. And that's where the really, like, you know, what we call the, you know, the pipe hitting was, was really taking place was in Afghanistan. Trying to so, remember, we got longtime friend of the show, Lowell Copper, Green Beret. I think he was a third, I think he was third group. And I think I remember him talking about learning French. He told me the story about when he was in selection being so delirious, he was talking to his buddy, but he, th I think he, <laughs> if I remember the story, right. He thinks he thought he was talking to a dog or something. I mean, cause he was just so <laughs> sleep deprived. He was first and third group. He was both of those two. Yeah. In his time. Uh, you guys probably had some overlap. You're a little bit older than he is age wise, but in those early Afghanistan days, I mean, he was there for a lot of different things, 2005-ish too. So you guys might have yeah. um, probably had some overlap in that space. Um, so that was, you were, but you were in active training up, doing stuff pre-9-11, right? Yeah, yeah. I was on a team by 90. Um, 99? 99, yeah. Okay. No, let me think, 2000, early 2000, yeah. Okay. Early 2000, I was on a team. 
early 2000, October 2000, coal, uh, September 2001, 9-11. I was was the senior team leader in the battalion when 9-11 happened. So where were you, where were you on that day? And what was, I mean, (laughs) I I know what your reaction will be, but just where were you? What, what was that day? I was getting ready. I had a, I had like a, I don't remember the exact time that that happened. Probably it was like eight something in the morning, I believe, because I had a 9am brief with my battalion commander to briefing on a training concept that we were going to go, that we were putting together. And all that got put on hold. (laughs) Yeah. I walked over to his office and I was sitting outside of his office and, you know, just about every military office has Fox News on. And so, you know, yeah, that happened. And he was just like, yeah, this brief's not happening. Go back to your team and wait for orders and wait for instructions. Yeah. And then, you know, everything was off the table at that point. So, how yeah. how quickly from that Tuesday uh, are you in country anywhere, you know, geared up, shipped out, going, was it a little while? What was the it was a while? Was it a yeah. While? Like, like, yeah, well, I guess we're going to get into it. So I'll tell you, um, please. Yep. <laughs> so here I was the senior team leader in first battalion, third group. And we went and did a, a train up, up in Virginia to get ready to go to Afghanistan. And my battalion executive officer, uh, called me in and I mean, we we're like just leaning forward. We're like, this is, you know, like October or night, probably November, okay. December, 2001. And there were already troops on the ground, but we were getting ready to go over and augment those. And uh, yeah, he called me into his mobile office up there and was like, Hey, I'm going to remove you from the team. And I, w- I was like, you know, I, I, I couldn't even process the words. I, I, like, you know, like some team leaders were getting two to three years on a team. I hadn't been, I'd been there about a year and a half. And I was mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? I was like, he said, yeah, my, my logistics officer is just letting me down. I need somebody I can count on. So I'm going to make you the battalion logistics officer. And I said, sir, I, I know zero about, I can't even spell logistics. I, I have no clue what you're like to put an inexperienced non-logistician in a key role right. like that, getting ready to go to war. Like it didn't make any sense to me. And so he said, look at your left shoulder, which of course is where the special forces tab was. He's like, you'll figure it out. Mm. And, um, you know, I was like, I was, I was extremely to say that I was extremely upset would be an understatement. Um, and you know, and I, I don't want to condone this behavior. I don't really think that this is a highlight of my life, but it, it is what happened. And that was, I, I basically said, you know, F you, um, yeah. not to his face, but in the back of my head. And there's another unit up in Virginia that's, um, classified. It's on the level of, you know, Delta and SIL Team 6, yep. um, one of our government's non-attributable yep. uh, units. And so I picked up the phone and called and said, I'd like to go to your selection. And um, yeah, so next thing I know, I was at selection for that. Whoa. And so off- you did you what you did hard pivot. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm like, like I'm oh, gonna- you're going to like you're going to take me out of the fight, like when the biggest fight. Yeah, you yeah, weren't having it. Yeah, like and he I'm probably. Like, no, he, I mean, look, like he probably had good reason, right? Like he needed somebody he could trust or whatever in that role. But it seems like you were just like, no, my calling. I, I'm going in this thing. I'm going to do this. I'm yeah, going to like, fight. I'm not going to. Op- I'm not going to manage the fight. I'm going to fight. Yeah. Do you want your most experienced, you know, team leader leading a team, 
or running yeah. logistics. Like it didn't, you yeah. know, like to me, it just didn't compute. So Matt, how so, often do you, I mean, you ever think back on that? Like just the way that oh, those. I, I do. I think about it all the time. Right. I, I can war game it either way. Like part of me thinks I made the wrong decision because when they got into country, there were some team leaders that were relieved and they took those guys that had been pulled up to staff and pushed them back down to teams. Yeah. So it may have played out that way. Um, I mean, the guy that replaced me wasn't relieved, so I wouldn't have gone back to my team. I mean, he was only on the team a couple months before he was in combat with them. And again, I mean, if that's what you must do, great. But but why put the least experienced guy in the battalion on a team and replace the most experienced guy? So, yeah, long story short, I end up going up to Virginia, going through selection, going through uh, the training course, which is, you know, put me on another whole nother pipeline. And then so how I finally got into my first combat was in Iraq in 0304. Um, I augmented this, the um, combined joint special operations task force, Iraq. And uh, so, yeah, I wound up uh, for Iraq OIF one, mm-hmm. you know, three or four, almost a year. I think it was about nine months. I was over there. So that was my first of six deployments. And the only one to Iraq, the next five, would all be Afghanistan. You spent the bulk of your time there. I referenced that sort of heavy part of the conversation. We're going to talk about uh, a man that you got to meet, spend quite a bit of time on two deployments, met him in 2009, Nazarat Ahmad Yar, right? Call him Naz, right? Naz for the purpose of of our conversation. And and the reason we're connecting the dots is he was your interpreter, right? And becomes a critically important part of this warfare that we're a part of, right? If you're going to be embedded in country like this, doing the work that we're doing, they were a critically important role. Do you mind just, we've not done a lot of context around Mm -hmm. our war fighters and then the relationship with the interpreter. I'm really looking forward to this new movie that it's either coming out or it's come out or it's coming out. The guy Richie won the covenant. Yeah. Yeah. The covenant. Okay. Well, like let's, let's talk about that. Just, I mean, like, sure. I mean, I mean, I guess, I mean, this is a little bit just, you know, egocentric on me, but like I was telling my wife the other day, it's like, it's pretty damn bizarre that there's two movies in the theaters right now that both really, really touch my life. Yeah. Covenant because of the soldier interpreter relationship. And then like you mentioned at the beginning with, um, you know, the sounds of freedom, because we'll talk about that's how I exfilled Nasarat eventually out of, out of country was, with that organization's aircraft. And I was just like, with the Nazarene project. Yeah. Wow. Dude. That's, yeah. So, so I mean, I, just, I, just, I got, it, I got chills and like, we, we've not, you and I haven't orchestrated any of this. Like that's no. just, that's just life. That's just. Yeah. When you said that, I was right, just like, like, Oh, like, yeah, we're going to have to, like, like it, it, I don't, I don't know what the, the you know, the odds, I, you know, I'm not a statistician, right. but like, what are yeah. the odds of like two movies in the theaters on the same week? both being like pretty pivotal in your life. You know, I don't know. It's weird. But. Yeah. And like God's amazing. Um, it's my belief. Right. And just, I hadn't talked to worth in a while. Um, I, and I just was like, I need to check in on that. Yeah. I need to check in on him and just what, what's going on over there. Um, well, I freaking love worth. He's, yeah. he's a great man. He's a great human being. And, um, yeah. he's been very helpful for me. Uh, for yeah. for years ever since we served together but so these guys i mean um well tell me what they do I, we've we've not done this on this show right 
Tell me what they do for you guys. And then I also want to hear about how you form that relationship. And do you have to be careful in forming that relationship too? Yeah. I mean, like any relationship that you build with anybody is, you know, is a process of, you know, layering and building layers of trust and, and, you know, all the, all the different dynamics to a relationship, trust and respect and, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, communication and all the different things that, you know, but, but imagine, you know, I mean that you can say that for your neighbor, you can say that for, you know, a cousin or whatever, you know, somebody in your life, but imagine like those same parameters and the intensity that they they rise to in a combat scenario right like like now i have to trust this this person with my life um what is that like you know that's a that's a, a different level of intensity same yeah. with the communication and you know reliability trustworthiness uh, all the all the different things uh so it's a it's a very it's a very important relationship it's a very um life or death relationship it's an intense relationship at times um so yeah like it's um how much time are you spending together oh uh, every minute of every day and is one is yeah is one interpreter um helping a unit i mean i'm just i'm i don't don't know it kind of depends yeah it kind of depends on the 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 type of unit and the size of the unit but you know, in my role, so so I met Nasirat on my um, third and fourth, my third deployment, and then he was my interpreter for for number three and number four. Um, and so, yeah, in that role that we were in, you know, he was my primary interpreter for not everybody in in the unit had one, but there were two primary interpreters, basically one for me and one for my first sergeant. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we use them for everything and, and you, you really come to rely on them for way more than interpretation, you know, it, it could be knowledge, like, like just yeah, cultural stuff, cultural stuff, um, religious information, uh, situational awareness, interpretation, running errands, running the crews. Like sometimes you have Afghan crews that don't speak any English. So, you, so they, they become sort of like foremen, like on, you know, sort of um, construction type projects. Um, and then also just like sometimes resourcing stuff, like you might need something from the market, you know, like occasionally we would host dignitaries and we'd mm. want to, you know, would want to cook goat for them and stay traditional. So they'd have to resource certain things on what we call on the economy, on the local economy. Yeah. So they really become like really, I mean, integral is probably not even close to the, the intensity of the word that I need to describe it, but they're, they're totally ingrained, totally integral to the whole entire process. Outside so, of, outside of being in a combat zone. Yeah. How much more than that are they putting their life on the line? Oh, like, like, yeah, like e- even if it wasn't, I mean, even if it wasn't like combat operations and patrolling and things like that, you have to remember that like, you know, the Taliban, it's an insurgency, right? So it wasn't like they were walking, they were wearing uniforms and they were across yeah. the line of right. you know, demarcation and, you know, they were whatever, a mile away in that village. And we had a front, you know, between us. It was not like that at all. Like the Taliban were in these villages, the same villages that these, a lot of these interpreters came from. Um, or their families lived. And so 
by by volunteering and and by taking on that role, they really put their lives and their families' welfare at risk um, pretty intensely. In, yeah. in fact, I like to I, I like to really kind of think that <laughs> Nas didn't know better. I mean, and that, I don't want that to come off like like an insult that it kind of sounds like. But I, can I tell you how? He yeah, came please. Because yeah. this is this is really important. Yeah, where did um, he come from? Give me, yeah, give me a story. Yeah, like he when he when he passed a couple of weeks ago, he was thirty one years old. So if you do the math, he was super he was young, roughly eight or nine when nine eleven happened. Wow. So when when the major one of the major air bases in Afghanistan, which became a foothold for us to get in. You know, once we once we established a foothold, we could push personnel and logistics and everything there. The the, the air base was called Bagram. And Bagram it was just mm-hmm. of, yeah, Bagram um, Village, which is where he and there's another little village outside of that called Jean Kadam. And that was the village that he um, had grown up in. So essentially, you know, when I met him in 09, January of 09, the way the literally the way that he was introduced from the outgoing officer to me, the incoming officer was, yeah, this is Nasserat. And I'm looking at him like, like this dude's like a like a pimple faced teen. Yeah, he was 17, 17 or 18. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was like, um, you know, because a lot of the interpreters, you know, they had they had fled the country or immigrated, gone to any number of places in Europe, uh, gone to school, you know, learned English for educational purposes, um, et cetera, um, had, had education uh, behind their, their English. Um, and then there's Nazareth. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, at first you're like, why are you handing off this, like, you know, this, this unqualified interpreter and all these questions and red flags going off this kid, he's a kid and all these things. And um, so the way that they introduced him basically was like, oh, yeah, like he showed up, you know, when he was about eight or nine years old and wouldn't go away. And and like that's always stuck with me. Like nobody reminded me of that when he was killed. Like 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 I've always remembered for the past, you know, however many years it's been now, um, 14, 15 years. I've always remembered the fact that, yeah, like my introduction was. Here's the kid that wouldn't leave. Here's the kid that wouldn't go away. And essentially, you know, they were paying him out of their own pocket sometimes, paying him out of op fund, operational funds mm-hmm. to do things like, you know, clean toilets, empty the trash, rake leaves, whatever, just something to keep him busy. Because essentially he just, he just like, we just adopted him for yeah. lack of better. Words. Yeah. Uh, how, and, how, know, long, always, um, how long were you guys together? How long? Uh, right? A year total. So both of those employments were six months back to back. So six right. months from January to June of 09 and then repeated that in 10. So I spent a year with him as my primary interpreter. I was really pleased to see him when I got back in 10. And then you guys kind of go your separate ways. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he starts a family up, right? Like, right. He grows so, up, you know, a number of years pass. I mean, I, I did another couple of deployments, um, five and six. And uh, yeah, just kind of lost touch. I mean, the internet and social media wasn't sure. quite as prevalent, sure. you know? And so you, you just kind of, I mean, I knew like if I, if I came through Bagram, I, you know, I generally go to the, 
special forces bases and you'd see Nas or you'd talk to another interpreter and you'd hear. And so, I mean, I was still kind aware of them. on them a little bit and see. Yeah. How but by the time I did my last deployment from 13 to 14 and then, you know, by 17, I'm getting out of the army. I hadn't heard from him in, in several years. Um, you know, no, no fault of anybody. Just that's, you know, that's yeah. life and busy and communication systems. So then as everything starts to, I guess unravels the first word that came to mind. No, there's no, I, I, yeah. Okay. All right. What else then? Keep so going. he, and, and I'm going to admit this just because I appreciate transparency and everything. So I'll True. be transparent. He reached out to me in 20 and said, Hey bro, will you, will you help me and my wife and kids immigrate to the U S and regretfully my initial response was no. Um, I was in a pretty dark place mm -hmm. and I knew that that wasn't going to be, you know, a two day project and then wash my hands of it and be done. And I think for a lot of veterans, we, we have the optimism and the hope that we can take the war and compartmentalize it yeah. and then move on with our lives and never think of it again. And frankly, when he was murdered, you know, that, that night, as I was kind of, you know, well, not kind of, but I'll admit, it, I just, as I was crying over it, you know, I told my wife, I said, this war is going to be with me for the next, you know, 30, 40 years. I, I do not get to let it go. I do not get to compartmentalize it. And that mm -hmm. was my fear in 20. I was like, nope, sorry, I can't help you because I didn't know that I had the capacity to help. And then it was probably maybe a day or two later where I was like, what kind of shit bag are you, man? Like, like really dude, like all the, the, this guy's done for you and, and, and all the things and just, you know, like, and, and all he's done for this country and special forces and everything, and you can't help him. So I, I reached back out to him and said, okay, I'm on board. Let's get this done. So he started his immigration process. You need something called a CIV, yeah. a special immigration visa. And so we started that in early 20. And, you know, we got the paperwork done and that was a big ordeal. We finally got it all turned in. And then like literally like every week he had, you know, text me, Hey, what's the status? What's going on? What have you heard? You know, what's the news? When do I get to come? <laughs> and you're like, Hey, welcome to the United States government and bureaucracy at its yeah. finest. Like yeah. I have no updates. Like it went into the giant bureaucracy machine. When it pops out the other side, I have no idea, no control over it's not like your country where you can pay a bribe and, you know, <laughs> speed things up. Like, for some people it might be, but for those yeah. of us playing by the rules, unfortunately well, yeah, it's not. Without the means okay. and different things. Right. right. Like it was, it was like, yeah, sorry, Nas. Like I, I got nothing for you. And so that went on literally up until 2021. Yeah. So, yeah. And again, you know, again, this, this idea that you don't get to compartmentalize the war. So you wake up, you know, and what was it? July, August of 21. Yeah. yeah. Yep. End of July. And you're just yep. like, oh, you know, oh, hell, here we go again, you know, um, going to drag all this up. And then, you know, of course, he's, you know, at that point, like, like quite literally, there were probably in the neighborhood of 100 to 200 ex like text messages a day. Sure. Like I, I was reaching out through the veteran network, trying to connect trying to work the network as you resources. Can, yeah. yeah. And, and whoever, you know, anybody who knew anything, like, please put me in touch with. So I was doing all those text messages. And then I was reaching back the other direction to Nas saying, 
okay, we think, you know, like right now it seems like the best answer is go to Kabul and, and wait near the airport. Gosh, and then when that would, man. you know, fall apart, okay, well now where are we going to go? And then, you know, he would, okay. And then he had messaged me. I got a message. I, I was told to go to, you know, go back to Bagram. And so you, you just like, there were, there were several, you know, I don't know, several weeks, months there where we were just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, text messaging, you know, in, in both directions, trying to navigate him and keep him safe, keep him out of harm's way and his family. I mean, he, he spent every dollar he had because, you know, he, he'd go into these communities where he wasn't known. He didn't know who the Taliban was or wasn't, who was safe, wasn't. They they saw him the same, like, is this guy Taliban? Right. Why right. Not? And the only way to kind of like guarantee any sort of degree of safety was to pay again to bribe you know to bribe local people so he's just spending what he's got to make his way through all that i want to i want to hear about his actual exit yeah we've we've, you've mentioned it a few times we're going to get to the super heavy part of it which is how he ultimately loses his life we'll get there we're going to get there guys we're getting there um before that before we talk about his actual exit because we've heard different stories and i just want to kind of on behalf of our listeners and just the fact that you mentioned you, you're in a dark place, you guys put so much on the line for so long. I don't think it, by the average American, it's probably not understood what that July and August of 21 was like for you guys. And so I'm just, I'm just telling you, bro, like, we're just grateful for what you guys had to go through during that reliving of like, everything you went through for 20 years to see the way that went down. And I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I had to play out that way. And I know a lot of people are, and I know you don't need me to tell you that I'm sorry, <laughs> but just like, I just don't think it can be underestimated. And this is an audience that listens about picking up the six and just being grateful for that. It's like, what a shit show and what a shitty thing for so many warriors to have to deal with. Um, well, yeah, you know, oh, you can open that can just of my, worms. That's just my off-the-cuff just kind of <laughs> thoughts about it. Yeah, well, we've opened the can of worms. So if you may, if I may, I'd like to comment on that on two two levels. First of all, I consider myself very apolitical now because in the other part of the, that we're going to talk about in the second half of the call, I've had to be pretty involved with politics. And the more I'm involved with it, mm. the, the less of a fan I am. Sure. So I consider myself pretty a, apolitical, but... And so this isn't really from from an apolitical place. This isn't a heavy criticism of the Biden administration, although it could be. But I don't want it to come off that way. But here's the deal, man. Point number one is a lot of blood, sweat, tears and treasure went into that effort. And to leave the way we did. I mean, it, yeah, it, 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 it's unfathomable. It's unconsciousable. It's. There was, I don't even have words to describe what an insult to the veteran community it was to, to do that the way you did. Um, you know, the way the administration, not you, but the administration did like that. That was, that was horrific. And yeah, that mm-hmm. opens up all the wounds. And then the second comment is like, frankly, and this is, this is Butler's opinion. I don't know how many of my vet friends feel the same way as I do, but you know, we we must we we as a sovereign nation, we owed a response to 9-11. You can't let foreign, yep. you know, entities, whether they're you know, governments or quasi-governments or whatever, 
come onto U.S. soil and kill 5,000, you know, people, or I can't remember the number, 2,000 people, right? And not owe them a response. But my problem with it is, is that especially Iraq was a goose chase. There was probably no reason to go in there other than to vindicate Dick Cheney and Bush Sr., and then second of all, which we didn't really do. And then second of all, Afghanistan for 20 years, like it, my personal opinion that 18 and a half of those 20 years was driven by the industrial military complex war machine, yep. turning millionaires into billionaires yep. at the blood, at the expense of the blood of my brothers and sisters. And, and so, I think, and I, but I think that's why we here, uh, and other, well, I'm not the we're not the only ones doing it. Are are attempting to in the aftermath of that not lose sight of the hundreds and thousands of you guys that went and put it on the line, not for yeah. and that's it's not for nothing. I mean that is not for nothing. Well, um, when, but the way it ended was shitty. <laughs> yeah. So you took an already, you know, waste of a war. And and waste of life and waste of time and everything like that, and you punctuated it with a godforsaken withdrawal that just created so much horror. So yeah, so that's that's how Nas, you know, like sitting there waiting for his his he and his family waiting for their visas, and then it turned into you know life saving navigation, safe house to safe house. At one point, I literally got him to and i don't say me let me be very clear this was a team a big team of people i, I couldn't even mention all of them um but uh yeah so we had him up near we had him on the northern border just outside of masri sharif and i was like literally talking to him about how to get inner tubes out of tires build a raft Holy float across shit. the river i had yeah. i had like talked to a few veteran friends about going into uh you know tajikistan um i mean all sorts of just crazy stuff like we're just like we were throwing everything we could at the wall and seeing what stuck um but no i mean the river was pretty raging and it, it, like he had a wife and young kids so eventually um he went back down um he was in mazari sharif and then I was posting about it on Facebook and my cousin, um, she, she was friends with the CEO of Operation Underground Railroad, which joined forces with Glenn Beck yep. and became the Nazarene Fund. Yep. And she says, listen, I'm going to, you know, can I connect you? And so I, instead of just talking to a face, faceless, nameless person, I was connected to some of the higher leadership in that organization directly and they were so accommodating so helpful and um they had a plane in country when the taliban said um yeah this is it no more planes coming in what's here is here we'll let you know we'll, we'll let you fill your planes and then they can go and then that's it and you know we just prayed, you know, there was yeah. Nas praying, me praying, everybody praying that he could get a seat on that plane. And uh, I got a, I got a phone call from that gentleman that I've been working with. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to put your five um, on this plane or yeah, five. Um, 
because their last child was born in the refugee camp in uh, Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. So anyway, yeah, so wow. they got the last five seats and then went to a refugee camp. And then it was the same process. Bro, what's going on? What's the update? What am I coming? How long am I here? I'm like, again, out of my hands, Nas, out of my hands. You're safe. You're fed. <laughs> you, you have you have a tent. Like it's not great, but it's but but the Taliban's not there. So let's just yeah. focus on good stuff, yeah. right? Let's just focus on you're not running from from the Taliban. And so he he waited it out about nine months, where and then his youngest child was born, and then he got relocated to Philadelphia. And he was in Philadelphia from uh, twenty, uh, let's see, yeah, twenty two to early this year, twenty three. Yep. So about a year in Philadelphia and ironically didn't feel safe. Um, and that was the last time I saw him. I went out to Philly and visited him and his family and um, yeah, he didn't feel safe. So he said he had, there was a much stronger Afghan community. And um, so he went, he would actually go down there every weekend anyway, you know, it's four hours. So yep. they were spending every weekend in Philadelphia or in DC so as soon as he could, as soon as he could put it together, he left Philly and went to D.C. He was living in Alexandria, uh, and he was driving a tow, to a tow truck for another Afghan during the day and then lift at night because, frankly, you know, that's what he that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to bust his ass and put away the money. His dream was owning his own tow company, and he was, you know, he was well on the way to doing that. He was a hard worker, intelligent, um, bright, um, patriotic, always cheerful soul. And so he was out there making it happen. And then, um, yeah, he was murdered uh, late in the evening, late at night on July 2nd. And um, I got the phone call on the morning of July 3rd from just a few weeks we're just a few weeks removed and you guys, maybe you saw it on the news or you heard about it, or maybe this is the first time you're hearing about it. He's the, he was that kid that uh, was always there. Right. And just kind of always working. He was looking to carry that over. Yeah. And I wish, I wish we could tell you that this has a happier ending to his individual story, but it doesn't. Um, and that's the heavy, this has all been heavy, but that's the super heavy part of this. Yeah. Um, Ali's busting his ass. A tragic event like that happens. And, and you know, I mean, the thing is, is if you've seen the footage, if you've watched any of the news reports, some of them include the footage. Uh, somebody caught it on their doorbell camera. It's four kids. It's, I mean, they're young, like maybe 14 to maybe 16 at the most. And um, it senseless, wrong place, wrong time. That's yeah. all it was. I mean, God, that's so, no so wild, man. Yeah. It's so wild that he goes through all of that. <laughs> like Tally could have got him anytime. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, here, here's a kid that like put his life on the line, put his life at risk, put his family's lives at risk from the time he was about eight or nine years old until, you know, until he could finally get out of that country, uh, you know, 20, 20 years later. And then, you know, also lived in dangerous circumstances in Philly yeah. and then, you know, doing one of the most dangerous jobs and yeah. Um, no, 
no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. Just horrific tragedy. Um, you guys have probably sprung into action, I'm sure, uh, to help and support his family. So now my first thought is like, there's got to be ways. GoFundMe, something where our yeah. listeners can do something to support them, help them. Wife, text four, three kids? Four kids. Four kids. Yeah, daughter and then three sons. Send me yeah. whatever is out there to support them. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll okay. put it on the show page. We'll throw, pick up the six. We'll throw some support that way for sure. Um, cause they've got to, I mean, his family's got to kind of rebuild their life without him now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that was a beautiful thing. As soon as, as soon as everybody heard that, you know, those old group text messages that had been so critical in 21 in getting every, you know, getting him safe sprung right back into action. Yeah. And, and it was, it was just beautiful. You know, I mean, yeah. all these people who maybe didn't meet him, didn't serve with him, but had been part of his rescue, been part of his evacuation, his immigration. And, and every, in fact, I even, I knew, you know, I'd been in contact with his caseworkers in Philly. I contacted them. They sent a contingency down to attend the funeral. I mean, everybody just sprang, sprung into action. And, and yeah, there's a GoFundMe out there where we're, we're pushing for a pretty sizable amount. We're over half a million right now. Wow. Um, we're not trying to just, you know, get the funds to bury him or the funds to cover the next couple of car payments. We, we want to take care to, of his family here for a while. Yeah, yeah. We're trying to set it up in a trust so that they're taken care of for long-term. How do you, I'm going to ask you just a blunt question. I, I just, I hope that's okay. Yeah. How do you, um, how do you add this to everything else you've had to process through this? Cause we're going to talk sort of with the time we've got left, the ways in which you're looking to take care of yourself, but also take care of others. And that's a lot. That's a lot, man. I, um, you know, I've gone through quite a transformation in the past couple of years, um, in, in an effort to cure my PTSD or to, to, to live beyond it and um part of that's been a spiritual awakening and i don't believe in coincidence anymore i just don't i yep. believe that everything happens for a reason yep even the tragedies happen for a reason yep and you know when i must have done somewhere in the neighborhood of a dozen 15 different interviews that week and anybody would ask me, do you have anything else to say before we end? And I would always say, yeah, I really hope that these young men turn their lives around and live in a way that memorializes Nasserat and live a life that he would have lived. Because that's really the only justice that will be carried out. I mean, the, the detective that talked to me said, hey, they're, you know, they're young teenagers even if they were 18, it doesn't matter. In DC, they have what they call um, juvenile life, which means you you go to jail until you're 21. So, you know, I mean, even if it, even if that wasn't the case, even if they went to jail for 60 years, it's not. Right. It doesn't bring him back. Right. Um, so, yeah. so how do we turn something this like this into a positive? And in my mind, the only way to do it is is for those four men to turn their lives around and to 
you know, to live quadruple the life that Nas would have lived and, and be an example of change. What are you tactically doing that's led to that sort of spiritual kind of awakening? Right? What are you doing in your life? We're going to go there. I mean, it's up to you as much as you want to. No, I want want to. to. I just, this is timing. Yep. Um, Okay. So I'm going to caveat this and say two things. I want to be very, very clear if I may. Okay. Please. First of all, as we discussed, I'm an officer. Officers don't generally get into the scrapes that the NCOs do. So first of all, I want to give respect and difference to them. I also want to be very clear that I, I was not out there, you know, doing the pipe hitting as it were. Um, I mean, I, you know, I was shot at and rocketed and mortared and all those things. Um, yeah, but not nearly to the degree that the NCOs were, and I'm not pretending that they were first of all, second of all, I think that it's, you know, in my new role, I, PTSD is um, a topic that I've had to dive deep dive into. And the thing about PTSD or any trauma for that matter is, you know, it's not a contest. It's not a contest to see whose is worse or whose is better or anything like that. If, If anybody out there is traumatized or suffering from trauma or PTSD, then that's very individual and personalized to them. So when I say, that I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. It's not necessarily all because of the war. Um, there were a lot of things in my personal life that were going on that, that contributed mm-hmm. to it as well, but that was also secondary and third order effects of the, you know, of war and military and everything like that. So, so I just want to caveat and say, Nope, I wasn't quite in the mix like everybody, you know, like some of the others and, and please don't judge me or anybody else or yourself over your PTSD. What you have is yours and it's very personal in nature. And that's, that is the, actually the nature of it. And mm-hmm. so we have to get out of this place of like comparing ourselves because that is actually more harmful because then people are saying, well, I didn't do this. I shouldn't be that bad. I'm not as, you know, that guy seems to have it, his shit together and I don't. And I didn't experience so much, so I guess I don't need help. And then we're just, you know, we're we're further perpetuating um, unhealthy lifestyles and choices and, and putting people at risk, okay? So with that, what I'll say is, to answer your question is, so when I retired in 2017, I moved back to Utah. I was, I was in the midst of my third divorce. Mm. Um, you know, I, I describe it as an, as an iceberg on the tip of the iceberg, everything great. Right. Like I, I had a military retirement. I had a six figure job. I had a, you know, a sports car and a big house and yeah, I would have told everybody, everything was fine. Everything's fine. Plus it's beat into your head as a green beret, you know, like, like you don't show weakness. Like that is, that is the, you know, that's like sharks and blood in the water, dude. Like at least in those days, right. Like, if you showed weakness, like the, the sharks would start to circle and you better, better, you know, you better be careful. Um, so like, it was kind of ingrained in me from the community and and everything else, like to, to not really admit that I even had a problem. Um, and then what happened was, like I said, so on the surface, everything looked good, but in reality, under the surface, what was going on was I was going through my third divorce, 
I was using alcohol combined with opioids to get sleep at night because I couldn't sleep. Right. And that's exactly what they say. Don't do like big, bold letters on the label. Like, do not take with uh, alcohol and I'd wash it down with alcohol. Um, really, really depressed. There was no joy in life. Um, deeply suicidal. And um, yeah, uh, that was, oh, and then the other thing was the law. <laughs> um, I was getting called, I was getting calls out to the house uh, pretty frequently with the law enforcement and they were getting closer and closer together and they were getting more and more intense. Mm. So it was like, Ooh, you know, I, I can kind of do the math. I can kind of see where this is going. And then what happened is my, um, I went up to my father's house and um, got it. It was father's day and I got into an argument over something really stupid. And then six weeks went by and I didn't talk to my mom and dad. And then I said, Oh, I'm going to go up there and try to mend this fence. And so I went up there for dinner instead of mending the fence, we just kind of resumed the argument and it, it turned uh, pretty heated. And um, so I went to leave because we have fight or flight Mm-hmm. or freeze but there's no freeze in a green beret so it's either fight or flight so i was on the process of leaving and my dad said you know get your ass back here what he meant was you owe your mother an apology because i dropped a few f-bombs in their home disrespectfully and um but what my reptilian brain heard was oh i don't have flight anymore so all i got is fight so I turned and punched a wall, uh, punched a hole in the drywall as if to say, don't take another, like you yeah. do not want, you don't want me coming back in. Here. Yeah. Like, yeah. like think really carefully, old man, think yeah. real carefully. And um, so then he called out to my sister and said, uh, call the cops. And uh, I sat in the driveway and waited for the cops to come. They came and I was like, my whole attitude around it was like, this is such a waste of my time. I got better things to be doing, you know, <laughs> whatever projects I have. So I sat there because it was a rural county. So it took him 45 minutes even to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I talked to him for five minutes. I told him the story. I told him exactly what I told you. Like, can I just go home now? Like, all I did was punch a wall, you know. And then um, they they went inside and interviewed all of them. And they came back out um, like 45 minutes later and said, um, I'm like, can I go? Am I free to go? And he just simply said, I need you to step out of the car and put your hands on the, mm. on the, da- or on the, on the door. And I just felt like my whole world just like, you know, closed in on me. And so, yeah, um, got a, got a ride in a, in a cruiser to, to the jail house with, mm-hmm. you know, handcuffs um, on the whole way. And um, two things happened in that jail cell. Um, one was I had, I, finally admitted I have a problem, yep. which I don't think I'd really truly admitted to up until then. And number two, um, I realized that I was in that insanity circle, you know, where you keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. And Cause the thing was, is I, it wasn't for lack of trying. I mean, I, I was on all the antidepressants. I was going to counseling. I was going to therapy. I was going to AA was doing everything that, that was, you know, told to me to do, I was a good soldier. I know how to obey orders. So I was doing all the things, but, but the problem was that nothing changed. In fact, things kept getting worse and worse and worse. So when I got out, I started Googling, you know, how to cure PTSD is PTSD curable. Can soldiers recover from PTSD? Mm -hmm. And, um, 
yeah, that led me down a rabbit hole that we like to call plant medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I heard about this thing called ayahuasca, a tea made up of two primary ingredients, uh, from South America. And I made it my mission to try to go. And then pandemic happened. And so it took me forever to, to try to find it. Um, I finally connected with it in 2021 and changed my life changed I mean, life. overnight, overnight. Yeah. Overnight, 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 overnight. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, overnight in the sense that the ceremony, the, the retreat was, um, four days and three nights. So over a weekend, I mean, I, I, in the grand scheme of things, we can classify overnight. that as yeah. overnight. Yeah. Yeah. Like I walked out of that ceremony um no longer alcoholic no longer i haven't no longer using opioids i haven't any haven't had any antidepressants any opioids um in you know over two over two years now um i do have an occasional drink but the thing was is then i was drinking to medicate now i might have a beer with dinner or something yeah and there might be two a month versus half a bottle of Jameson at night to get you you to sleep at night. Yeah. 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 Now it's just a matter of like, Oh, it's super hot. And I've been working outside all day. Maybe I'll have a cold beer, you know? Sure. It's entirely different energy, but yeah. Like, yeah. So occasional drink, but no opioids, no antidepressants, none of that. All, all. And, and the nightmares, that was the other thing too. That's why it was so hard getting to drink was because, or why I would have to drink to go to sleep is because you're just so sick and tired of having these nightmares every night. And then those all evaporated too, all gone over again, overnight. And, and what happened was, is like, there was, there was suddenly this real, real deep realization that everything that I ever, like, you have to understand, I, I grew up LD Mormon, right? In, yeah. You, know, you guys not touching that stuff. Right. Right. And I'm, and you know, I, I'm not now I I've left the church, uh, you know, cause again, like this has been a spiritual awakening and, um, and so, yeah, like, you know, for the first, you know, 20 years of my life, like taboo, taboo, taboo. Right. And then of course, on top of that, you got the government preaching, you know, how taboo it is. Yeah. And, and then you go into the military where, you know, like if you so much as touch a joint, you're going to get caught and lose, you know, you could be in 19 years, 11 months and three weeks and lose 20, you know, lose all of that and not get a pension. So of course, like I went from smoking maybe half a dozen joints in high school, just kind of experimentally to nothing for, you know, almost uh, 30 plus years. And then <laughs> jumping into ayahuasca, the right. grand, yeah, the, the, right. the OG. Well, I'm just, um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you're willing to talk about it because, yeah. um, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm just a guy on the outside looking in, but thinking like, there's gotta be a better way than that method of the opioid alcohol cocktail. So, so you could just black out. There's just, there's gotta be a better way. And what you're showing and telling is that by your firsthand experiences, there is a better way. How's, how's Matt Butler now? How are those relationships now? How's your family now? You know, all that stuff. <laughs> um, well, this is the beauty of, this is the beauty of, um, a spiritual awakening and healing. 
And, you know, I'll probably get some, some crap from the special forces community for saying this, but, you know, again, candid and trans transparent. Um, you know, one day I just realized like, you know, I was like a typical Green Beret. I, I don't know how many guns I had, you know, and that was the answer, right? Like someone would ask you how many guns you have. Like, I don't know. Cause you stop counting at a certain point. You just keep buying and buying and buying. And, um, and that was me. I enjoy shooting. I did, you know, mm-hmm. and then one day I just woke up and said, you know what? Um, I don't need these guns anymore. Uh, my dad's biggest dream in life was to own a boat and he's never been able to get it. And, uh, I sold all my guns and bought my dad a boat. Bought him a boat. Yeah, that's how my relationship is now. It's all they've all yeah. been repaired. Yeah. Um, you know the 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 plant medicine gives you the the insight, the insight that you need in order to heal things. the The thing about plant medicine is it takes you into your subconscious. And in your subconscious, you can see things that you can't see in your conscious. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest and most transformative journeys that I ever had was seeing the pain and the burden and the emotional burden that my father carried mm. and crying and weeping and weeping and weeping over that poor man's pain and realizing how much I've added to that. You know, so whatever silly argument it was I had with him back in 17 or 18, I mean, you know, like, it is so insignificant when you start to understand what a human being he is as well, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and not, you know, and, and it's not just my father, all the different relationships I've We're really been carrying stuff. We're all carrying. Yeah. But then when they come to interaction heads, right. But it's you, can't, of, it's you, all, can't, you can't see you, it. You can't because your ego gets right. in the way of right. No, totally. Your totally. ego gets in the way of, of all of that. That's where the arguments come from. That's sure. where the disagreements, sure. uh, you know, all that. And so, you know, what I was able to finally see through plant medicine was, was, you know, is empathy. <laughs> it's mm. plain and simple. It's empathy. It's like yeah. finally being able to see something other than what my ego was telling me to see. And mm. then just crying and sobbing and realizing how much, and it's not just, you know, personal relationships. It was everything. It was like realizing you know, the, how much I loved mother earth and, and, you know, and, and all, and yeah, I mean, it was like full wholesale spiritual awakening going like, Oh my God, like, I cannot believe how wrong I have been for half a century. And what am I going to do about that now? And then that's the thing is like, when I realized suddenly realized how, beautiful and safe and effective these medicines are then it kind of made me mad right Mm. because now i'm like wait a minute i've been lied to by my church by my family by the government by nancy reagan (laughs) everybody's been lying to me for 50 years man hold on a second so that's when i went down that rabbit hole of trying to understand Now I need to clarify. Here's I keep calling them medicine because, like, like frankly, they are. They are medicine. Um, I have, you know, the federal government has three criteria for a scheduled one narcotic. It is must be addictive, must be 
uh, could be possibly fatal at the, you know, at a high dosage or, and last but not least, must not hold any medicinal value. Okay. So frankly, like crack, heroin, fentanyl, things like that, you know, schedule one narcotic, right? Sure. Yeah. Got it. Check. Addictive right. could kill you. No medicinal value. We got it. Yeah. But you could argue fentanyl does have some medicinal value because technically it was, you know, derived. Sure, but in in what it's morphed into and what it is today, yeah, bath salts, all these other, you know, this it's a cold blooded killer that, by the way, is pouring is a perfect example, right? Pouring across the borders too, which is a whole nother conversation. But the difference is by tapping into what you're talking about, plant based medicines, and you use that word with intentionality is is being able to leverage those things for, for the betterment for the good for for taking care well, of the funny thing is they're all scheduled yeah they're all schedule one narcotics which me and and they don't meet any single one of the criteria right they're not addictive they're not they're not fatal at any dose like it's impossible like there there's in no no place in recorded history is there any evidence of anybody ever ODing on cannabis or psilocybin or ayahuasca right like like it there's no evidence, period. Right. End of story. Right. And then of Full course stop. they hold medicinal value. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, it, it's and, and like there's it's um we don't probably have the time or even I don't even really have enough know-how to really get into but the point of I, why I wanted to talk to you about it. Well, I'm glad you're willing to do it. And by the way, everything you've talked about today, I promise you, this first time you've ever been on the show, you don't know me that well, but our folks, we just don't take for granted you going through all of this and just taking an hour to talk to me about it. We don't take that any of that for granted. So thanks for doing it. But what hey, I think it's you. showing is that is like there are other pathways forward. And what I hope is happening is, and we're seeing it from the Rogans to all these other, you're seeing a groundswell of, wait, well, let's learn more. Let's know more. Let's explore yeah. more. Let's not just shut it down as these things are class one, you know, like that's it. Boom. No, like there's, there's more to it. There's more nuance to it. There's way well, more. We've been totally lied to us. And, yeah. and to your point, right. Just to be blunt. Yeah. Wool's been pulled over your eyes. Yeah. We've been straight up lied to by the, you know, um, I, f- I forget the name of the family, but the family that was behind, they were in that movie dope sick. There right. was the story about, you know, the opioid crisis Dude, watch it. Watch the Netflix series. Uh, it's a four-parter where they How go through all these, right? And yeah. I'm not, I'm not doing all those things, but I just was able to watch and at least be open-minded about what's out there and what could help people yeah. break through. And to your point, you're not. There's no hyperbole when you say your life was changed and oh, saved. Saved. A hundred percent changed my life. Hundred percent saved my life. I was, wow. I was so suicidal. I just didn't have any reason for living um whatsoever and uh had no joy had no happiness had no peace um right, yeah but there's chemicals uh, floating around in your brain that you can do something about that's what i'm learning right and, and, the, and the funny thing there is, is like all the drugs and the medicines that the va wants to give you actually just make the matter worse i know that's um, the bullshit of it man yeah and and yeah. these these are like literally plants like it's insane to me to think right like native people have been using it for years to remedy themselves. There must oh, be I something mean, there that's legit. Yeah, like we're talking like thousands and thousands and thousands of years of recorded history using these plants right. to heal and then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, the government comes along and tells us that they're I know. well, we're dangerous. the beauty of platforms 
you know, it's sort of the beauty of this podcast space. And listen, yeah. go do your homework, right? Well, Nothing, I, right? Go do your homework. You can research it, but just there's more cases and more people speaking up about it. And so I think that you're just going to continue to see a groundswell for this kind of stuff. Well, I like to approach it from a real rational place and say, like, if you had an upset stomach and you took an antacid calcium to quell that, would that make sense? And most people say yes. If you were constipated and you ate oatmeal, would that right. make sense? Right. Right. Sure. Well, then. No. Yeah. Then, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Then what no. are the reasons right. that You're we have cannabis, psilocybin, and ayahuasca? What do they do? And can also, we use for- if you could take an antacid, but. What if I told you you could make a super simple tea of ginger and mint and honey yeah. and you'd feel just as good with natural ingredients? Exactly. Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. So so that's the, you know, that was kind of the the awakening that I had around the plant medicines and realizing just how safe um effect really it was the effectiveness of yeah, it all. Yeah. Because sure. like a lot of times when I because I do so that's so I kind of do a couple of things now. One is I advocate, like I'm I've uh, been on um, multiple um, nonprofits working for the decriminalization of these plants. Right. And then second of all, helping veterans to find the medicine, because that's a really hard thing. You don't know who to trust. You don't know sure. where sure. to go and, and things like that. And so it that's been a big part of it. And and um, yeah, it's it's always kind of a, an interesting process to kind of help people navigate that space. But hey, will you do me a favor? Yeah. The more you go through it, let's check back in. Okay. Right? Let's yeah. carry this conversation on, right? Keep working, keep okay. advocating. Matt, I got to tell you, man, one of the, we have, uh, it's a real conversation. I'm grateful for it, man. This, um, sharing your entire story, uh, what you're doing now. So let's, we need to catch back up on that. Like, I want to come back to. and, yeah, right, and go in depth. And this whole thing, right? This whole conversation today, we're lifting up now, right? That's the sort of the point that brought us together. And yeah, let's 100%. not forget that, right? For sure. Brother, I'm grateful for you, man. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate you having me. Anytime. It's Matt Butler. This has been just an amazing conversation. We could probably rogue in this thing and go for three or four hours, but <laughs> I'm going to let you go for now. Okay. Uh, and we'll come back and we'll do more later. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate yep. it. Sounds hang, great. Tight, hang tight for a second. Yep. Uh, he's Matt Butler. I'm Brian Jodis. That's been this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. <laughs>